Hello and welcome back to So What Does Judaism Say About? where we discuss everyday topics and the Jewish perspective on them. Today we're going to be discussing economics. Rabbi Rick Fox here with me as always is the boisterous Rabbi Mayor Beer. Hello Rabbi Beer, how you doing? Fantastic. <laughs> as usual. Okay, the you know, if if you'd go over to the average person in the street and ask them what Judaism focuses on, it'll tell you it, uh, you know, spiritual endeavors, Sabbath, food restrictions. One quarter of the Shulchan Aruch, of the basic text of Jewish law. The, is code, the code of Jewish law created in the 1500s by Yosef Karo, the Shulchan Aruch. That's what, that's what we're discussing here. Yeah, is on monetary law. One quarter. One quarter. Wow. Not if, quite if you divide it by chapters, but one section of the four sections is on monetary law. Quarter of the Talmud is Nezikin, which is the section on monetary law. Just as detailed and as nuanced and as everything as the American legal code is. More so. So you can look at several ideas, I think, which will give us a you know insight into the Torah's view on economic policy. What is Torah economics? We always have this tension between individuals who want to accumulate wealth and that causing class disparity, that creating social tension. Everybody wants to be rich. Nobody wants to be poor, though. So is communism a good idea? It doesn't really seem to work very well. Well, you said something interesting. I mean, nobody wants to be poor. You could, you can also point to sort of spirituality and the concept of what the non-Torah definition of spirituality might be which is like if you look at how monks or how, um, whether whether they be at uh, uh, Christian monks or, or Chinese monks and their, their Eastern religions, and th- they want to be poor. In fact, they take vows of poverty and all these different things. We, we don't do that, right? So the, if, the, the sages of the Talmud, some of them were the wealthiest people in the world. Right, correct. So you, a person can, if this is his personality... You know, if your personality is that you're, you know, have those competitive business drives, you can certainly follow that. Not only can you, you should, under the guide of the Torah. But when we look at, you know, economic controls, so anarchy is really not a great idea. And even <laughs> if you're a libertarian, you probably recognize the importance of something like the FDA. Because if there's no oversight in food production, we're going to be eating, you know, rats. And literally. That's what they were eating. Yeah. Everybody knows how the uh, FDA was created. Tell us how the FDA was created. Teddy Roosevelt read a book by a journalist called The Jungle about the Chicago meatpacking industry and stopped eating meat until the FDA was created. He was so disgusted <laughs> about what was going on. There was no oversight. They're just taking like, you know, disease-ridden rodents and throwing them into like the, the canned meat products. So you need, a, you need oversight. And, you know, if, if you don't have any antitrust laws, you're going to have problems as well. On the other hand, you know, you have problems when you control the economy too much. You stifle people's creativity, people's individuality. And, you know, communist society, which is, at least in its modern form, really just dictatorships, does not really allow the individual to express himself, aside from other problems. So just try to stay focused on economics. Just go through a couple of mitzvahs, which will give us some very... Um, unique insights into the way that Torah deals with all of these you know, issues. 
allowing people to be creative and successful and competitive and ambitious, which are natural drives of people, but at the same time, controlling them to the point where people don't kill each other. So what is that line that we have to draw? Where do you get the lines from? Where where do you draw the lines? What is, you know, let's call it, it's not government oversight, but you're saying Torah oversight and economic policy. So to get the full picture would take 10 years, give or take. Just give a couple of pointers uh, in that direction, which was give us an idea of how the Torah balances this all out. And this is not going to be a super long lecture, but just from Cleaning, you know, gathering a couple of these ideas, you can start to get a, a little bit of, a, of an overview or a picture. All right, let's take a look. All right, so number one is there is a law in Israel where ancestral properties, Jews go into Israel after Moses passes away, and the land is divided up among tribes and within tribes among families. Every 49 years, any land which is sold returns back to its ancestral ownership, besides for walled cities. So the only place where you can permanently purchase real estate are in specific areas, in urban areas. So large part, most of the country can never be permanently owned, and that reverts back to its ancestral without ownership. without sale, meaning no matter what it pays. No yeah, the sale pay. is 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 by definition limited. In certain countries, I think Singapore, but I'd have to double check this is true. I think you can only buy land for like ninety nine years. Like there are certain government rules about, I don't know, all over the country, but there are, there are areas which have certain restrictions on how permanently one can own land. But in Israel, you can only buy land within these 49-year cycles. So what that does is it creates a system in which it is very difficult to really control large amounts permanently. And not only that, a person has the right to redeem ancestral land which he sells. It's called pidyon. Meaning I can buy it back at any, any time in the 50 years. Well, there are I'm restrictions. Here. You have to wait a little bit until you can uh, purchase mm-hmm. it back. So what that does is two things. If the person is poor and is taken advantage of, then his land can be redeemed for whatever the sale price is. So if the seller, if the buyer pays too low of a price, the redemption price is going to be the same price and be very low. And if he's, you know, let's say it's a, there's a 49-year cycle. It's called the Yovel cycle. So let's say it's, there's 25 years left on the cycle. So the land is sold for 25 years. If you, if you want to redeem it after 12 years, it's, it's for half of the sale price. But whatever the sale price is, that's a redemption price. And that will control land from being purchased at too low of a price by people take, being taken advantage of. So you have this built-in system that makes what is real estate as the number one asset, the natural wealth of a country is you know largely tied to its real estate holdings is impossible for it to be permanently you know um like controlled by two by two few and, parties and it will be most expensive at the beginning of the oval cycle and it will be absolutely least expensive at the end right you want to buy a property for two years before yeovil so it's going to be pretty cheap to get that and flip around and do something with that for two years and then hand it back. Now, is there an economic reason that that's true and a spiritual reason? So one of the, the economic reason? reasons is that keeps that, that doesn't allow wealth accumulation to permanently end up in the hand of too few people. The whole feudal system in medieval Europe is because you have a few landowners who are keeping a poor population permanently poor. Because how are you going to own land? You're a serf. You're never going to have enough money to buy land unless something wacko happens. And... You know, you find a buried treasure, you know, 
on the road or something. So common. So you're, you're, you're permanently poor. Wow. Whereas if you have the most basic asset of a country being redistributed naturally every 49 years, that's going to completely change class and wealth and wealth accumulation. That is really interesting. So if we apply that today, we look at America doesn't run that way. Um, that does sound, uh, what would you call that? Is there an ism that that falls into? Is it only fall into Torahism? I, I don't believe there's a, there's a comparable system, at least not that I'm aware of. Because in communism, it reverts to the state and is always the states. So this this gets distributed back, back to, to the people. To the people. Itself. And it's not like it's a shocker. This is the system. Right. There's no revolution that comes around no, and says, no, you know, you, you don't own that anymore. Nobody is, nobody's going to get the land, you know, reappropriated or anything like right, that. It, right. It's just, you. if you're going to accumulate wealth, it's limited how much you can have that as a permanent, you know, accumulation. There's another law, which is applicable nowadays. So the Oval isn't. We don't. We don't know who the ancestral owners of land are and haven't for a very long time. That's going to be a shocker when that's revealed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Turns out the King David Hotel is actually owned by Ted Schmendrick. Something like that. <laughs> That, that, that's a bit of a complication when, you know, improvements are made and, you know, yeah, how, how, how you're going to call that. Okay. For another podcast. Another time. Okay. But there's another law which is applicable and is even more in some ways relevant to not having these, you know, a caste system, you know, or, or something like that, or an economic caste system, which is the laws of interest. A Jew is not allowed to lend another Jew money with interest. So what that does, I can invest money with you, but now when I invest money with you, I have to accept some of the risk. And if you structure a loan to another Jew and you do it in a way that's halakhically acceptable, you you structure it as an investment in which the lender assumes some of the risk. And what is the difference between loaning somebody money, which does carry risk, you person can just default, and investing in a business which carries risk? And- oh, well, the 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 uh, it doesn't the uh, the risk of that is the person having no money. So that's like a, he still owes you the money. Whereas if you accept risk, that means if the venue flops, you're not legally owed part mm, of the money mm. because you, you, you've accepted, you made an investment. If I invest money in your company and the company goes under, you don't owe me money. Now, isn't there a rule that loans are forgiven at a certain point in time also? That's very easily circumvented though. With the provable. Yeah. But the idea of this, of not being able to lend with interest, is it basically forces people with capital to be creative in using capital, which is another way to minimize the rich staying rich without adding anything of value to society. If you can't just lend money and sit back in your chair like a fat cat and just make money, you're going to have to find ways to have your money make money. You invest it. You take risks. Oh, interesting. So you're, you're instead of saying, okay, it's going to be 12%, 18%, 23%, whatever Visa is charging these days, right? It's not going to be that. It's going to be, I pick this business and I'm investing in this business. And presumably you're going to be invested in it, not just with your money because you want it to be successful because you haven't, you haven't, you've accepted some of the risk of that. Or you just loan the money because you want to do a favor, it sounds like, and and you just give them the money. At this point, Jewish sources say is the highest form of charity is giving somebody an interest-free loan because you're not make, you're not demeaning him by giving him charity. It's a loan. He owes it's you a the loan. Money. He owes he you the money. money. And you're not supposed to lend money to somebody you don't think is going to pay you back. You're not, you know, you're supposed to have personal responsibility, but by doing that, 
making your money available for people to use at, at no cost is a great form of charity because they have to pay you back. They're going to do something with it. It's better to give somebody a loan to start a business than to just give them, you know, food handouts. Wow. So this this is a subtle thing, but it and this still exists in in, in many Jewish communities. There's something called a gemach, which stands for gemilas chasadim. Literally means just acts of kindness, but it is a a term used for interest free loans. And you can you can you can get interest free loans. They'll demand a couple of cosigners, as they should. So. You're going to take that with that loan to start a business. You're going to have, you know, some relatives back it up and, you know, take some of the risk if you can't pay it. But the goal is not for you to accept charity. The goal is for you to be economically independent. And successful. And successful. Beautiful. So we have both a a a, um, a portrayal on a halacha of a person who we would like to be successful, but the idea of just a, of wealth accumulation just being self-sustaining as something which is not generally the healthiest thing for society. And it isn't because, you know, when you have second or third generation, very wealthy, you know, trust babies, whatever you call them. Trust fund babies. They're not, you know, if they're not producing, they're not doing, as a human being, you're not happy. Meaning they themselves, the trust fund people themselves are not happy. Yeah, because a human being is happy when, he, you know, you enjoy luxuries, everybody does, but you need to have a purpose. You need right. to be creative you need to do, you need to accomplish, and you do that from a business point by creating new 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 business opportunities, new business ideas, or whatever it is. Right, right. So built into all of this, obviously money can sustain itself for a while, but as a, as a, a, a philosophy, if you can't lend money with interest, the money is going to lack some of that just ability to sustain itself. And it seems like a tremendous amount of the American economy is based on the two principles opposite of what we just discussed in Torah, that America is based on the ability that you do own land forever and you do it either what you will and that you, you know, everybody's making money on loaning, loaning money with interest. That's everything. That's how the whole thing works. Right. And then to keep the economic disparity in check, you need to artificially pay people, you know, give out handouts and right. subsidize things. So now, so now you have the government subsidizing, handing out, which is taking people's creativity and independent success away from them. So the American system of what we'll just call regulated capitalism, or whatever you want to call it, also seems like it has its flaws. Does the Torah economic system have flaws, or is it by definition, since it's created by God, it would be by definition flawless? Well, you'd have to assume that everybody (laughs) is is implementing the rules to their fullest extent. In theory, in theory. Well, you know. Presumably, if God created a God created system it. with rules, you know, you'd hope that. No, I don't. I don't know if I've ever. Th- I don't know if I've ever had that thought before. Meaning, I, I. But you certainly see advantages to such a system, for sure. But what I'm saying now is, as someone who came to the concept of Torah and mitzvot at 25 years old and going, right? That's my background. Your background has been your whole life. I'm saying that it's interesting to me that I would consider things like the the moral laws or regulations or rules, things like that, to be to be divine and obviously monetary law i never thought about it but that's obviously divine also which by definition would mean that it is also perfect that's very interesting yeah the talmud writes this is an attractive of abastra in regards to hoarding um um commodities so if stuff is what's well, called a shar when the um uh, literally means a gate when the uh new produce hits the market 
shortly after the harvest season, whatever it is, after the processing season, it is forbidden to buy staples and hoard them because the price will get inflated artificially and you are causing havoc to people that need these staples. So if you hoard wheat, you buy up all you buy up large amounts of wheat when the wheat hits the market in whatever it is, October, November, and then you hoard it and planning on selling it in February when the price goes up. So if you go your own stuff, you can sell it whenever you want. But if you buy up market the stuff that's on the market and hoard it for three months, you're gonna cause the price to go artificially up, which is gonna be very harmful for people of lower means. You're allowed to do it with things that are not necessities, like spices, which are valuable. Particularly in the ancient times, spices were valuable. But basic commodities like wheat and oil, according to some opinions, wine as well, because, you know, everybody needs a little wine, are considered economic staples, and it is restricted how you're allowed to basically allow artificially change the, the price of that commodity. Wow. Also, aren't the merchants restricted in how much above what they paid for it they can sell like a sixth above. A sixth is, is the is considered a reasonable profit. You're not supposed to. Well, that's after expenses. So a twenty percent uh, profit is that's a healthy a, profit. Is a healthy profit. Right. A sixth is a, a sixth internal six. Yeah. Once you add it on, once it's you add it on, so it's really twenty percent. Right. So you have all these rules that like so, and and this makes sense. Instead of having the, the government keep the price of wheat, which the government does. Artificially, uh, do. it's true. Artificially level, you have a series of a halachos of Jewish law, which will keep that regulated. If I'm not mistaken, the government does the opposite too, and I, I don't want to say unfortunately. I don't know because I don't know. I don't know enough. But they, the way the subsidies work, also is they'll the government will literally dump stuff. They'll if there's a corn surplus, they'll just they'll buy it up, pay the farmers, and dump it because they can't have farmers going bankrupt. They can't growing right. corn. It's, it's, right. it's very interesting. So it sounds like you, you have something here you want to share. I'll share one last thought. This is from Rabbi Rocham Lavavitz, who was the, one of the leaders of the Mir Yeshiva in Poland. Uh, this is a lecture he gave in Tough Race to Sadi Dalit, 1934, on Shavuos, actually, where he talks about communism. Communism was very popular in... It was the new fad. It was the new fad. Well, at this point, it had already been <laughs> implemented for a while, but in the 20s and 30s uh, in, in Europe, the, uh, you know, in, you went to universities and socialism and communism were really popular. It was like the, the thing of the youth. So yeshiva students are certainly curious about this as well. So he, he, he writes how he feels that communism, besides for all its practical you know, limitations and the idea of actually getting people to share things equally is a little far-fetched. But even if you get the system to theoretically work, he feels that it goes against the basic principle of the Torah. And that principle is something called Kenyan. Kenyan is ownership. And ownership is really really sharply defined in halacha, point of ownership, when ownership changes over. And he says the reason why there's such an emphasis in halacha on kinyan, on ownership, is because people are happiest with things they've created themselves. And people are happier with a slightly lower amount of wealth if they've created it themselves than just if it's simply given to them. So he says that a system of shared wealth where I don't live and enjoy directly what I've created and earned using my abilities is something which takes away from something which is innately human. And the reason why the Torah emphasizes, once again, this idea of Kenyan is specifically for this idea. And communism is what he calls Bittel Kenyan. It's the nullification of ownership, of individual ownership. And that is something which is never going to work 
the Torah's understanding of what a human being is. Or I want to do, I want to, you know, not, not that I, I mind what you have, but I want to have what I, what I made. You create something, there's a certain attachment you have to it. It's yourself. You're enjoying yourself. And there's, there's nothing in the world that can really give you that kind of pleasure. The American dream is not to be wealthy, but is to enjoy wealth you've created. Wow. That's something which he describes as being an essential Torah value. That lines up with Torah. You're saying that, that, that old school American dream. Yeah, you work hard and you just, you know, you're, you're, you're confident and you're proactive and you just, you know, you create. That's beautiful. It's human, as he describes it. Wow. So it sounds like the Torah's economic system is largely, up, you know, take your opportunities, try to be successful, work hard, be capitalistic, but we have some fail-safes to make sure things don't get out of hand. And a lot of moral restrictions in, right. you know, That's things like not, as you mentioned, not, not, not profit gouging, Systems and controlling basic staple prices, the land, the no the land, land, the the interest free loans. You know, this is going to create a dynamic because you're dealing with a moral code that, hopefully, if it's implemented, will reshape the way the way the economy looks. Fascinating. Okay, well, I'd like to talk more about this another time. Thank you for joining us again on another episode of So What Does Judaism Say About?